2: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are back with another great episode for you guys tonight. Now, for anybody who hasn't listened before, the Habitat Podcast is the podcast for wildlife managers and everybody else trying to become better habitat managers. We're out there all the time improving our land and the land around us for the wildlife to benefit them. So, guys, today I have a special guest on the line, Mike Perry. Mike is from Pennsylvania, he hunts in PA and Ohio, and this is a pretty interesting episode. It's a little bit more scouting focus, and deer bedding focus, and how those both relate to what types of habitat there is out there on farm country, public land, swamps, wherever we all hunt, there's a way to relate the habitat to deer bedding and how to find it. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Funnels, big tracks, oxbows and creek bends. Mike is a deer killer, a big buck killer, and is a very experienced scouter. And is actually new to the food plot side of things. So we dive into that too, what his plans are with finally adding food to his regiment. So Mike Perry, PA. Let's get into that here shortly. I want to thank our sponsor, Nick Persky at Killer Food Plots. I actually got my Border Patrol and Smoke Screen planted yesterday morning. Now these are screening products. The Border Patrol I am using to screen my plot and break up my plot into a horseshoe shape and create some natural funnels with that screen. The Smoke Screen is also a screen, but I'm using it for access along my property line. The difference is the Border Patrol has some food in it, and the smoke screen does not. So what that's going to do is allow me to get two different types of screen. I'm getting access to my stand, hiding my food plot from deer cruising 50 or 60 yards back in the woods. They won't be able to see across the whole thing, and they're going to have to come check out the food plot itself. So I got that planted yesterday. We have about until mid-July to plant that uh, this year, with how wet it is. I actually used my Packer Max to cultivate pack that in after I disked. And guys, it's a muddy mess out there, and the packer still packed everything down super firm. Gave these seeds a great seed bed, and there's enough moisture in the soil. I don't even think it needs to rain yet, but it's gonna rain tonight actually, so I should be perfect on those. And hopefully we get some heat and some you know, rain, and that's going to help those screens shoot up. So thank you to our sponsors there, Packer Max and Killer Food Plus for allowing me to get that screen in. And next, guys, we have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. we actually have been posting some new videos recently, some bear hunts. So if you've ever been bear hunting and want to see uh, a couple more real nice bears shot on film, check them out at michiganwhitetailpursuit.com. There's also the Facebook group called The Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. There's about 3,000 members on there. It's very interactive. Lots of people posting up their, their buck kills and their turkey kills and everything else. And uh, just a great group of people, um, you know, producing, filming hunts for everybody to see. So, now I want to touch on some of the great reviews we've been getting on iTunes recently. So, thank you guys for doing that. We have Trump Cowley Outfitters. Keep up the great work. Lots of hunting podcasts out there, but I'm leaning in your direction lately due to your consistently high-quality content and informative guests. Easy to listen to, just like I'm sitting around the fire with my buddies. Thank you, Trump Outfitters. We're going to get a decal sent out to you. I really appreciate it. And we have uh, Hound, another user who left us a review. Always a good listen. Can't wait for the next one. It's surprising what you think you may know or don't know about habitat management. Whether you're a hardcore wannabe or just interested, the guests and topics are entertaining, diverse, and informative. When listening to each episode, you start to realize how each topic is somehow connected, even though it's not obvious at first. You learn that there are many solutions and alternatives out there and to get closer to your goals. I enjoy listening very much. Keep it going, Jared and Brian. Thanks. Thank you, Decoy Hound. I will get you a decal as well for leaving us that five-star review. Guys, we have 101 ratings on there. Please go to your podcast app on your phone or Apple iTunes online and leave us a good review. Like I said, you get a free decal. So we appreciate your support on that, guys. And keep listening. We have a real nice couple episodes coming up, guys. You're going to love them. We have episode 49 and 50 coming up after this. And they are going to be some great ones, guys, some of our best yet. So stay tuned. Big things to come for the Habitat Podcast. You can listen to us at habitatpodcast.com. And uh, you know what? Without further ado, let's get Mike Perry from Pennsylvania on the line right now. And we're back, guys. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my co-host Brian Hallblad on the line. And our excited guest, I'm excited. His name is Mike Perry. Mike, how you doing?
3: Good. How about you guys?
2: Good, man. Thanks for coming on tonight. No problem. We, uh, Glad to be here. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. We had some uh, technical difficulties, so, you know, we're rolling now. Um, Brian, you got Mike, or you got a hold of Mike. Uh, you're, you guys are friends, right? From the same area, or how's that work?
1: Yeah, Pennsylvania. Uh, I've known of Mike for... Gosh, that'll be going on 10, 15 years through the United Bow Hunters of Pennsylvania. We both worked in different capacities for that organization over the years. And uh, more recently, we've been able to get to meet each other in person. And he's been over to my farm a couple times. I've been down to his lease a couple times. And uh, just really enjoy his friendship and sharing all our deer hunting stories.
2: Very nice. I, well, I appreciate you getting, uh, you getting this scheduled. Mike, uh, you mentioned you've been on a few other podcasts before, so this isn't your first time. That's that's good to hear. Uh, I'd like to, if, if you can, we usually start out with an introduction of the guests, who they are, where they're from. I always say paint a picture, you know, kind of explain to the listeners who we're talking to. You mind going
3: through that? No, no problem. Um I live in northwest Pennsylvania, in Waterford, Pennsylvania, and um, I work um, for a newspaper. I'm a supervisor for distribution, uh, transportation, you know, the, the drivers, a uh, load and dock foreman, and uh, I've been hunting since I was 12 years old. I'm 53 now. Um, I've been bow hunting since uh, 86, started bow hunting uh Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York in '87, '88. So I've been at it a long time, learned through trial and error mostly. But uh, wow, yeah, I work third shift. I have two boys and a wife, and um, live out in the country, own 20 acres, and uh, we're starting to try to do a little bit of improvements here on that. I wish I would have started when I built this place in '94, but you know, I'm a slow learner, I guess. So. Well, I don't
2: think um. Correct me if I'm wrong, where a lot of, I mean, the habitat stuff probably wasn't maybe broadcast as much back then. I'm sure it wasn't broadcast as much back then, but were you aware of people talking about it as much back in 94?
3: No, you know, and and the thing of it is, when it came to, um, you know, hunting Pennsylvania for me, all the way up until antler restrictions, which were in early 2000s, I really just would go out and try to kill the you know, the, the first buck I could get, you know, and, and I, I concentrated on my serious hunting on New York and Ohio, and especially Ohio, and I and I hunt a lot of public over in PA, and uh, I just never really hunted that much right around my house here, and uh, I, as my my sons got of age of hunting, I started realizing that, you know, there's some pretty nice deer right behind my house when I, you know, started um setting up, getting things ready for them to hunt just close to the house. I didn't want to drag them three quarters of a mile back into a swamp or anything, yeah. you know, <laughs> around here and ruin them at an early age, right. so I started setting up cameras back here and, and um started noticing that there's, you know, not only a lot of deer, but there's some pretty nice deer around here, so now we're starting to try and, you know, improve things here. Um, I wish I would have started sooner. I have had it logged out a few times, and that has helped out because, it, you know, how you know i have like 18 acres of woods and that creates uh you know a lot of thick growth and a lot of bedding the deer are in there so
2: that's awesome and yeah i think uh we do know what you're talking about with that logging and an open canopy i mean i think if there's one thing that we've talked about the most out of our almost 50 episodes it's it's getting that sunlight to the forest floor so definitely Mm -hmm. got you there um i actually signed uh a contract with a forester today, so I'm going to try doing that even more um, on the back part of my property. So, now on, on your 20 acres, was it hard to find a, a forester, maybe not a forester but a logger, to come in there for a good price? Or did you have a lot of high value stuff in there, or, or what was it?
3: Um, no, it was well, it's definitely not hard in this area. There's a lot of logging that goes on, so you know, I, I just got three bids each time. I had a forester come when I first bought the property. Um, I originally bought three acres in in 93 to build the house, and my grandmother owned this farm. That's how I got involved in hunting when I was a kid. I grew up in the city, and um, I, we would come out here on the weekends, and my grandpa got me into hunting. He took me out, my grandpa and my uncles, and uh, started out that way. And after my grandfather passed away in 84, uh, um, you know, I was on my own. I started getting into bow hunting and all that. And uh, so I bought that property, the first three acres in, like, 93, built the house. And then in 96 or '7, my grandmother sold me the additional 17 acres right behind my three. So, um, yeah, there's, there's this whole, you know, it's pretty forested around here. I mean, it's farmland but there's a lot of forest. Um there's not a lot of small woodlots. It's usually big woodlots with, you know, fields all interspersed around the squares, you know. So,
2: okay. So, is it fairly uh hilly? Is there some topography in your area or
3: right here at the house, it's a little bit of rolling hills. It's it's mostly flat. I live in the um, you know, not too far from a a a, a river. And, uh, so I'm not too far from the, you know, uh, the, um, you know, where all the flat land is. You know, there are, some, there is some topography changes, but, but not a lot. It's not as flat as Ohio where I hunt at, which is about 40, 50 miles uh, to the west of where I live. That's pretty much all flat over there where Brian's farm's at and where I hunt at. But, uh, around here, it's, there is some topography. It's not, it's not, there's no big hills, but, you know, you have your gullies and your ravines and stuff like that, so...
2: Okay, so you hunt over by by Brian's farm too. Okay, now
3: yeah, I'm about four miles from him or so. Oh, geez,
2: that's close. Um, mm-hmm. now you've been hunting for if I did my math right, was it 40 years? Um,
3: well, um, yeah, 41 years. I I've been hunting, but I've been you know into the and, and deer hunting since I was 16, so you know 36, 37, whatever. And then I've been bow hunting pretty. Uh, I got into it pretty hard and when i was 21 so you know 32 years of hardcore deer hunting basically
2: okay so when do you think for you in your past you went to the full-blown addiction like uh like brian and i and, and yourself like uh, we all have when did you cross that line and, and you know there's a lot of time that coincides with chasing an older deer but maybe it doesn't with you i'm just
3: curious when, when was that this was 1986. It was the first year I bow hunted, and I actually, back then, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, stump jumpers, we, we, your tree stands were, you know, a wooden stand built into the side of a tree, you know, and I had a stand across the road from my grandmother's farm, and I got up there with a bow, and it was like the first or second time I was up in that stand, and I had a buck near an archery come in within 12 yards, I think it was, and I could not even draw my bow back i mean the arrow kept coming off the rest trying to draw <laughs> on them. i was just i i never felt nothing like it you know i had shot a few deer with a gun before that you know but this was just unbelievable so i just couldn't get enough of it i didn't kill anything that first year but then in 87 i shot a buck an eight point on the first day of archery and then i ended up buying an ohio license because i wanted to keep bow hunting and oh, next yeah. i knew i was hunting new york and then I was just hunting every day of the season for years and years and years in three states and whatever state I'd travel to. Every once in a while, I'd I'd go on a trip somewhere, but usually just for turkey, but I'd deer hunt too, other states, but never killed much in the other states. But that was, you know, back then I haven't been deer hunting in another state for a while other than Ohio and TA.
2: Okay, so Mike, I have to ask, what's a stump jumper? <laughs> Pennsylvania, <laughs> there's
3: a guy behind every tree. So you know, you sit on a stump, you get your little, you know, your little thermoset thing and clipped onto your belt back in the day, and you would sit on a stump and you, you know, you'd move around and that's what you, <laughs> that's how we <laughs> hunted back then. That's gun season in PA. Largest man. armed militia in the United States.
2: I, I love it. I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of deer hunters in the last, I don't know how many years, but I've never heard that term, so I had to ask. And, uh, well,
3: that's what the guys in New York always called us. We'd come up there, and they just they just couldn't stand it because we'd come up there during gun season and shoot all the deer. You know, I mean, we, we, what we had tags for, but they just they just would shake their heads. They called us stump jumpers. They didn't <laughs> they didn't like us too much. we were shooting their deer as far as they were concerned. So, now,
1: Mike, uh, we'd like to tie this into the habitat portion of it for some of our listeners, okay. yeah. and. Um, what what type of habitat are you hunting up there around the house in Pennsylvania? And then you can go into your uh, places you hunt in Ohio also. What, what kind of habitat are we talking about?
3: Now, around here, like I said, it is a farming community. There's a lot of farmland. I have permission from a lot of farmers around here. But I mainly hunt the public land, which are the big swamps. You know, it always seems to be, at least in the area I live in, the swamps end up becoming the, the public land, you know, the, whatever, h- however they end up acquiring it, ends up being, you know, stuff that isn't, you know, real tillable land. So I'm hunting a lot of uh, a lot of swamps, beaver dams, uh, creek systems, you know, oxbow lakes in them, um, stuff like that. That's what I hunt mainly in Pennsylvania. In Ohio, it's mostly uh, farmland with, you know, good-sized chunks of timber but a lot of ag and, you know, flatter area, which over here, like I said, we, we'll get some gullies and ravines and stuff, but, but nothing real steep in elevation differences.
1: Right. You so Yeah. I mean, uh, he owns a property like that, uh, walk us through, you know, talk about the oxbows and other features that you're looking for when you're going out there to scout in the spring.
3: Okay. Well, uh, on the public around here, I, I'm looking to get, we get quite a bit of pressure I think I heard that Pennsylvania has the most bow hunters per square mile. Um, I was just heard that somewhere before. So when you're going to hunt public around here, you have to get away from the guys because that's where the deer are going to be, especially the bigger bucks. So I'm looking to get I'm, – I'm always looking for water. I use water as a barrier, you know, for whatever reason. most guys don't like crossing water. They don't like going too far from the trucks, you know. Uh, I know that's the – The cliche, but it does seem to be true. The further you get away from people, and if you have to, you know, cross some water, go through a beaver dam, you know, you're going to be back there by yourself most of the time. I usually hunt in hip waders or chest waders, depending on how much rain we get. But I hunt in hip waders almost always in Pennsylvania on public land, and that keeps me away from the crowds. You actually sit
2: in the hip waders?
3: Oh, yeah. Nice. yeah, I've done it forever. Yeah. So I'm just used to it. Right, one year, I was after a buck. There was a big one. Uh, 173. The buck ended up scoring it. Someone ended up killing it that I knew during gun, but um, I wanted that buck bad, and, and I had that. And it rained so much, I had to go around a mile and three quarters crossing all these beaver dams and creeks and everything that I could get to. I couldn't get across the creek that, that I wanted to get across to hunt this buck but I had to wear chest waders and walk through water, was, you know, belly deep in the dark and I did it for you know, uh, the whole rut right, trying to kill that buck so I hunted in chest waders every day neoprene wow. chest waders so it wasn't so bad it was, I wasn't cold but yeah it was a hassle but I guess I'm just crazy that way <laughs>
1: So yeah, What do you What do you find um, that the bu- the mature bucks like back in that kind of habitat?
3: Well, um, they just like you know the thickets. You know, they just want to be away from away from the people. And uh, you know, the does are going to be back there. I mean, you, you just got to find a food source close to the bedding and uh, get on that first food source. Find the scrapes that are closest to the bedding. And and I just try to. I mean. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, hunting close to bedding areas. And back in the 90s and, you know, late 80s, that was taboo. You know, everybody told you, oh, you can't go into the bedroom, you know. Yeah. And they'd be, they'd be sitting on the outside, way outside of it. But, you sure. know, I just noticed, you know, a long time ago that the closer you get into the bedding, the better. And, you know, it. it it's, it's hard to say exactly what they like. I mean, it, when you get back in these swamps and some of these big swamps, it, it's, it's, just, it's just thick everywhere. So you just look for any kind of transition you can find, you know. So just different, different timber, you know, um, brush lines along the creeks. I like hunting, you know, looking for funnels and um, find something where there's a beaver dam, you know, and the deer usually are going to parallel those beaver dams when they travel. And if you can find a beaver dam that has, you know, an oxbow lake coming up next to it, um, or you know, a stream or river coming up next to it creates a funnel, and uh, that's usually where I'll be hunting at something, something like that. There's a lot of uh, oxbow lakes in some of these places I hunt. What your, you know, how a meandering creek will, over time, you know, has a lot of bends in it, and over time, when you get a flood, it'll, it'll, it'll you know, change the course of the of the of the creek or the river, sure. and it'll leave that section of you know, say there used to be a big loop in the river. Well, then you know, it'll it'll flood over that, and then it'll change the course, and then it'll, it'll leave that whole section which used to be the creek of just you know, full of standing water. And you know, the deer really, when those dry up, they they you know, scrapes all through there. But when they fill up with water, then they just you know parallel them, but You know, I try to use stuff like that to my advantage. get water on both sides of me and find a funnel going through that. And a lot of that you can't really see from an aerial photo. you got to get in there and walk around and find it, you know. So I'm in there looking for big tracks and, you know, buck sign. But, you know, I'm I'm not as much concerned with, you know, rubs as I am, uh, rubs or scrapes for that matter. If if there's good trails in there and there's does in there and it's thick and there's some food, there's going to be, Big buck's moving through there in November, for sure. So, you know, I don't know if you want me to go through the whole thing that I do. What, I, You know, when I, I'll, I I find these areas, and I scout them out, and I try to find what I think are going to be good funnel areas, and then I'll put cameras in there. You know, I didn't back in the day. You know, I've been using cameras since, like, oh2 But, you know, back then, I didn't have that advantage. But nowadays, it makes it a lot easier because I can put a camera in there, and I can monitor it without even hunting it. I have so many different spots that I go to, but I'll find a couple new spots every year, and I'll just I'll just put cameras out and let them sit there and just soak the whole season. And then when right before a gun, I'll go in there and take them down so they don't get stolen. Because during gun, someone might end up finding them. And uh, if if I got you know pictures of does going through on a regular basis, and I know there's doe bedding by, you know that's why I put the camera there because I found the bedding areas. And I know there's does regularly going through, and I see that there's mature bucks cruising through there during daylight, and that there's the cameras are still gone. No one stole them. I ain't getting pictures of guys, and I know that I can go back there in a rut. I don't even have to touch that spot until November, and that's when I'll go in late October, early November, and I'll go in there and I'll sit all day long. And when I shoot the bucks, it's usually, you know, mid-morning, midday, something like that.
1: Okay. So you're, you're basically keying in on them during that breeding period. Mm-hmm. Is there any other times, you know, cold fronts or anything else you pay attention to that might get you in on them earlier?
3: Well, nowadays, um, I have been doing that more often. Um, you know, I, I will go in in October if I got a good spot and, and there's a cold front and, and hunt it, you know, if I got good access in the wind and everything's good and, uh but you know, it, I only started doing that the last you know five or six years when I started you know reading and getting involved with guys on the hunting beast and about you know these guys that are hunting buck beds. I mean, I'm not a buck bed hunter per se. I try it. It's just it's just you know it, these guys are good you know because it's okay. it's hard to get it's hard to get in on on a close on a buck bed I and mean, there's guys that do it every year but you know they're they're bedded in that spot for a reason because it's you know pretty much rock solid. You know, so yeah. I, I spent most of my earlier years of bow hunting shooting does in October. and I would fill my doe tags in October. I don't do that anymore. But, um, you know, now I'm, I've been trying to do that when you get a cold front, get in there in October and try to try to get in on the, some buck beds that I know about but it hasn't worked out for me yet. But, you know, working third shift, it's tough for me to do. You know, I hunt mobile all the time. Um, In Pennsylvania on the public land, and it's real hard to um, when you have to be to work at 8:30 at night. It's getting dark at seven to go in there and get getting set up. Part I can I can do, but getting getting torn down quietly and getting out of there and then driving 23 miles to work, it just doesn't work out for me. So it's just tough for me to hunt buck bedding in in October. Sure. So that's why I like to key in on hunting in a rut more than anything. I concentrate on does then.
1: Okay, well, you can't argue with the success that you've had. Uh, I, I don't blame you. I mean, I've, I've been studying the beach, uh tactics since you got me involved in it, and uh, I believe a lot of it helped me so that fucking DA this year. I used a lot of the tactics I learned from those guys. So it definitely works, but mm-hmm. I can't argue with what you've been doing. Uh, it's a good technique that you're using through that time of year. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that hunt you had last year on that big Ohio buck?
3: Okay, um, that's on a property that um, me and three friends lease. It's 500 acres. I had been hunting that spot since the late 90s. It was always just a permission farm I had. Um, It was pounded with hunters, and um, a couple years ago, a few other guys approached the farmer and asked if, if he would lease the property to him, and he said, well, the condition is you have to let Mike on it, so... You know, I was grateful for that. I mean, I really didn't want to have to pay to hunt, but you know, it, it is what it is. And I was grateful that they let me on. And they became good friends of mine, and then they ended up getting out of it last year. And the farmer wanted me to find a couple other guys, so I did that. So I have a lot of history with this farms. What I'm getting at, and uh, that buck in particular, I had been getting pictures of him since 2012, when I believed he was two and a half. Um, the EHD had hit that farm hard that year, and um, there was very few deer left after the e h d like you know i am I was guessing seventy percent I mean I found nineteen deer myself said and uh and um anyhow, this buck I called him boss hog i I didn't hunt him until twenty fourteen when he was four and a half um there was a couple other guys that were on the farm, like I said that were hunting them, we had a lot of history with him and um, when those guys got off the lease, I knew that I was going to probably have the best chance at them because the three guys I brought on hadn't really ever hunted there before. I was trying to help those guys out, and then I was setting up stands for everybody to hunt out of, you know, in, um, before the season, and what I kind of did was I just kind of like, you know, we just soaked the, the place with trail cameras, so I kind of gridded out. on There's 250 acres on each side of the road. And I set everything up so I could um, go in there and hunt when I had occasion started at the end of October and be able to hit three or four cameras um, and go in and hunt a stand, either a stand I already had pre-hung or else I'd uh, go in with my my lone wolf, you know, sticks and stand. And uh, that was my tactic. I went in there the first week of November, last couple days of October, first week of November, and I hopped around on both sides of the road. There was two bucks I was after. The one I had found both sheds from the year before. He was like a 147 that year. I called Shorty, and then he was on the one side of the road, and his buck boss hog was on the other side of the road. He, it was funny how that, that boss hog buck all the years he would. I never, we never got pictures of him on the other side of the road. At least I never did. So basically, what I did was I just grid hunted it. You know, the first. Um, seven, eight days, I just hopped around in different sections of the farm so that I wasn't putting too much pressure, and I was able to check three or four cameras each time, and then I, you know, was taking that data and going, okay, he was here on this day, he was here on this day, he's traveling this direction, he was going on this wind, and i um, just kind of putting the pieces together, and finally moved in there on the 4th of November, noticed that he had been, the last couple years... Transitioning uh, his the way he liked to walk was north south, and uh, he um, there was a trail that went from the would be the northwest down to the southeast towards the creek. I knew of a few places where he bedded at, and I figured that that trail would be the best trail that I'd have a chance to kill him on. And it just so happened that you know it worked out that way. In fact, I took you to that spot, Brian. That's where. You came with me to look for that buck from the year before, that 11-point.
1: Yeah, I remember that.
3: Yeah, so that, that tree is the tree I shot that, that buck out of. Okay.
2: Now, Mike,
3: how big was that buck? How big that buck ended up being? How old? Uh, he was eight and a half years old. Oh, baby. He dressed, yeah, he still dressed 200 pounds even, and he was uh, 161, 162, right around there, that area.
2: Congratulations, yeah. first of all. Um, hey, thank you. Second of all, what what type of specific habitat is that buck bedding in? And what type of habitat do you find the other bucks in in PA or wherever you're scouting a lot? What specific habitat is that thicket? You know, what's that made out of? Like, what are you finding that these deer are bedding in?
3: Well, they're betting in a lot of uh, just you know <laughs> thick brush on the edges of cricks for the most part. You know, is is that that buck would bet on the edge of a beaver dam in some little bit more open woods on this knoll, and he could watch down over the beaver dam. He could see anything coming to him, and the wind was coming out from you know the, off the other property. When he would bed there, so he could smell anybody coming from behind, and he could watch. So yeah, that, that. But he had, you know, three or four beds that I know of were his in there. Um, you know, it's just, it's it, it's it's a lot of swamp white oak in there. And there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just real thick, nasty, model floor rows. I mean, it's just okay. thick. Okay. You know, it just. So I, I can't I can't give you the ex, exact uh, no, you know okay. type of, but but that's.
2: Well, and it's more of um, the the feature as well, which seems to be water in a lot of these spots. Mm-hmm. Um, water mm-hmm. and thick cover. And we can relate to that here in Michigan. I tell you what, I've hunted public land for my entire life. Shot my first deer on public land, the the whole thing. And what I've learned, uh, it may have taken me a while, but I've learned that the thicker it gets, the better it gets. Like, And usually, in Michigan, that means a swamp. Um, and and I mean, most of the time I don't even need my gun during gun season. It's usually when we're in public it's gun season, but I could shoot them all with my bow because I'm only in you know 30 yard openings or 20 yard openings, and it seems to be thick brush along a water feature. So I just mm-hmm. was curious what what you had to say and, about
3: and, that. And that, and that's and that, and a lot of times you know when you do have like like at that farm for instance, you have some swamp white oaks. So it gets a little bit, I wouldn't say open, but you can see a little further. I mean, because a lot of it, you can't see 10, 15 yards, you know. Yep. But, you know, they usually like to bed somewhere where they can see a little ways, and they'll sit on the edge of that, and, and they'll have the wind coming over their back from, you know, the thicker stuff behind them, and then watch out in front of them, you know, so. Okay.
2: Um, is there any other sort of terrain feature or habitat feature, whether it's, a sand of oaks or a clear cut or anything else that you look for when you're scouting either a private or public farm?
3: Yeah, definitely like hunting clear cuts, too, on the edges of clear cuts. That, that farm there also on the one side of the road where that Buck Shorty was, I had found both of his sheds. And the one he was bedding 100 yards off of a, a cornfield. Uh, just Well, some years it's corn, some years it's beans. but um, And there's a little... Um, ridge right there, and it was all, you know, a lot of mature trees in there, but right there it had been selectively cut about four or five years ago, so there was a, a real thick snag right in there, and his one shed was laying in his bed right in there, and then nice. the other one was, was in the, um, on the edge of the clear cut, and they, they would bed on that clear cut, and the, the clear cut um, ran in the whole length of the property north-south, and then it was to the west, of our property, so when there was a west wind, those deer would bed on that east side of that clear cut and look out into that where them oaks are. There's a lot of real nice mature oaks in there, and it had been selectively cut, so there was pockets of thicket in that 250, but um, in that 250 acres, but um, they would bed on the edge of that clear cut, and then they'd watch out, and then they'd go right into them oaks and feed, you know, first ones right off the bat. Uh, Passed up some real nice bucks. The first few days I hunted this year, on the edge of that clear cut, I had went in there and mapped out where every you know all the trails coming out of there, using the Onyx mapping. Yeah, you know, um, I like that. I mean, back in the day, I would I would take surveyor tape and I'd walk all the deer trails and mark it so I could figure out which way everything was going. But now I will put them on that that on that mapping on Onyx. And I'll just walk up and down the trails in in the um you know March when all the you know out, there's you know no leaf cover right and, and and map it all out that way now you can get a bird's eye view of it makes it a little easier you know yeah yeah for sure um, good point now when you're when you're dealing with these
2: clearcuts are you finding that they're bedding in them or feeding in them going to them for a destination food
3: source or both or what are you finding well they're they're definitely they're doing all of the all of the above but They, they, they do like the bed in those clear cuts. And the thing about clear cuts, at least the ones that I've dealt with, is they don't bed like in the middle of the clear cut. Or at least that's not what I find. I find most of the beds are on the perimeters of the clear cut within, you know, 100 yards and in towards the, towards the mature timber or field or whatever happens to be on the outside of them. You know, so they're, they're, you know, most of the good bedding is on the edge of it. So the you first know, right on that yards transition, in the yeah. Okay. Yeah, transition. more 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 so even the first like 30 to 50 yards, but yeah, they don't go. You know, I, I've been in some big clear cuts and usually, you know, you know how thick they can be and nasty oh, yeah. and, and mull floor rows and all that. You know, yeah, they'll be bedding in in the middle of it, but unless there's a lot of pressure, I don't think they're going to be bed right in the middle of it. You know, okay. they're usually on the edges of it. I think those are like wind-specific beds, so that you know they're, they're sitting there on certain winds, so that they can watch the opening. You
2: know? Right. Right. So and and just going. for for anybody who doesn't know what Mike's referring to, um, a, a buck will bed with the wind at his back. So say you have a clear cut to the east and uh, open hardwoods to the to the west. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. How bad on that transition? with the east wind coming through the clear cut behind him, and he'll look to the west, downwind. Exactly. Downwind, yes. so he can see what's coming and also smell what's coming on the other side of him, on his backside. Yep, exactly. So I will make sure I hit that in case uh, you have some listeners who, who weren't aware of that quite yet, so the deer can cover uh, both sides when he's when he's bedded. Now, do you find the same way in a swamp like Dan Paul talks about? It's still that transition line. Uh, they don't necessarily bed... I guess all the time on that transition line in a swamp, but that's where he scouts. Uh, what do you find as a commonality between the swamp and the clear cut?
3: Well, yeah, the the swamp it, it, it is the same thing because you will, well at least you know I mean not always but yeah and you're especially down along the edges of a, a beaver dam for instance you know if you ever like, if you notice you know you say you have a big beaver dam that will like hold ducks you know it's got water on it you know that first, at least where I'm hunting at, that first 20, 30, 40 yards off of that water is usually really, really thick, you know, dogwood and and stuff like that going through you know, and then, you know, as it, because it's lower there, you know, and then it gradually starts going up and then you'll start having, you know, you know, whether whether it's logged or not or whatever, you have more open woods and, you know, a lot of times they're bedded right off of that, you know, they're right in there. And that's where you'll find, you know, the clusters of rubs and, you know, the rub lines start coming out of there. And, and that's that's the stuff that, you know, you want to get – you want if you can get in there and hunt it, that's where you want to be, you know. You want to yeah. get down as close as you can to that, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm trying to just put a couple things together between all these different areas that you hunt that might all be in common. Um, and it seems to be that you're on the edge of a vetting area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's where you start, the the dow- yeah. the down side of a bedding area, I'm guessing, yep. um, and, and go from there. Okay. Um, yeah, and then,
3: like I, I, a lot of my hunting is in bedding, and, and a lot of bedding is on a transition line, and it could be any kind of transition line, you know what I mean? So it, it, there's what a else is lot, there lot of different things had, that make yeah. a transition line. It could be a field, it could be... You know, you guys know, I mean it, yep. could, it could be uh, hemlocks it could, it's just different changes in in habitat and you know, thank God I read an article about that back in the late 80s or something and and it was one of the few things that you know, you have to, you know, sift through the tea leaves when you're reading, you know, hunting articles because a lot of stuff people just write sounds good in theory but it doesn't actually <laughs> work. Yeah. You know, so so you have to you have to um you know, go out and see what works and what doesn't work, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I read everything from, you know, rattling works to, you know, which I'm sure in a lot of places it does, not in Pennsylvania, on public land it don't, but, you know, um, so it's just, I, I, I figured out a long time ago that hunting, uh, any type of transition where, you know, the more habitats that come together, the better, so say you've got three different things coming together, then, you know, that's better than two, you know, and, that's where the deer spend their time. That's where they travel. That's where they, in my opinion, rut. That's where the bucks cruise for does. That's where the does are bedding. And, uh, okay. And that's where I'm trying to hunt. <laughs> no, no, I like it. Um,
2: I had one more question on that, but it's slipping my mind now. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I find beds, you know, in, in my clover on the edge of a pine thicket or or wherever, and they might be summer beds versus you know in the fall and you a little more pressure. But uh, that's interesting.
3: No, yeah, you find well, I mean you find beds just you know on edges of fields a lot of times too. But you know you gotta watch sometimes that's where they're laying their chewing or cut at night, you know. But yep. you know you just gotta be able to you know f- kind of figure out what's what. I mean it's you know it just comes with experience and the more you know scouting you do the. You know, you'll 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 everyone figures it out. You know, I mean, yeah. a lot of big bucks will bed right on the edge of a field. You know, well, especially you're... in Ohio, that happens a lot. At yeah. Ryan's farm, for instance, I, he he had he has some great buck bedding watching his food plots. I mean, just inside, you know, 20 yards <laughs> in, you know, and and you know they know when you're there. You know what I mean? And Unfortunately, that's the hard part. That's the hard part right. of our hunting flat land. You know, you well,
2: that's actually what I was going to ask you that I had, had just forgot. Um, on the flatland, I hunt flatland where my property is, I find that they'll bet on the edge of a, a new hinge cut I made. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not even in it quite yet because I don't think the pressure is very high right now, but on the edge of it, right where that the edge is, that do you like edge, right? They're edge creatures, and, and right on the edge of the bed, or like you said, a field edge. Um, mm mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of rolling perfect right into the next segment here. What did you see on Brian's farm specifically with this habitat that that Brian learned from? Or when you guys walked in and you saw, you know, your take on how to hunt. Well, first let's start, like, where were they bedded that you guys found? How far off of the food plot? What were they bedding in, etc. cetera? Let's try to keep this bedding thing
3: rolling here. Okay, um... When I walked it, I noticed right away that they were bedding off of his, his main field um, um, that he used to have an egg. And now he, I know he's, he's transitioning all that over right now and bringing a lot of it back to new growth and that. Um, they were bedding on the edge of that. But Brian has a lot of uh, um, hinges in there and clearings that he made. And I noticed that, you know, they were definitely traveling in between those areas pretty good you know so basically let's just say for instance you know there's he had a clearing on the left and a clearing on the right and you know wasn't so clear in the middle I mean that's where there were some pretty good runways going through through that stuff they were betting on the edge of uh he has a couple uh, uh what do you call it uh the, the, the term you guys call a kill plot or whatever he um there was some good betting on that on that but what I noticed the most was on the back part of this farm would be the I think the north side. Is that right, right. Brian? Is that the north side? That's yeah, on the north side he has some really thick it looks like it was all clear cut at one time, you know, however many years ago. And uh you know, they were really bedding on the edge of that and he has, you know, some uh, food plots back there that are hidden, you know, from sight that, you know, no one would be able to see. And I think the deer really liked that. Um that was just I mean, it was just there was big beds all through there, and there was big rubs all through there, and there's definitely some big bucks spending some time in there. The yeah. only bad thing about that is there's, behind it, there's another however many hundred acres of clear cut, you know, so, you know, it makes it tough, right.
2: you know. Yeah, yeah, no, these these things know how to avoid us. That's for darn sure. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, with that, that first part you mentioned on Brian's farm, it's kind of, what i'm creating as well when you have two clear cut areas or open areas or hinge cut areas whatever you end up doing and you have that transition in between is that a spot you would set up to hunt and if yeah so, that's what
3: i was telling him how do you that's, get there finish your thought finish your thought we'll no, we'll no, no 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 you're
2: you're there my my thought was how do you if if they see you or if they you know it's open to where he parks i'm, I'm picturing his farm cuz i've seen it and i'm picturing mm-hmm. I picture mine the same way. How do you get in there without busting around out of their bed if they're better on the edge that's of the cut or they're better edge of the field? His front field, for instance. How do you how do you get in there? and Would you hunt that?
3: That is the million dollar question. <laughs> and the, and the thing it is, is yeah, I mean, the um that that's the tough part. Uh, I I would hunt there. I would hunt that, but I would well, basically the obviously the north end in the back. Where the, where the hidden food plots are. I mean, that would be my first choice to hunt um, sure, back there. But um, in between that, between his, um, what used to be his 10-acre crop field or whatever whatever size it was, and and that back corner, there's quite a bit of, you know, um, good-looking stuff in there. What I would suggest with his place is I would go down that, um, he has like a, I don't want to give away too much stuff here because I know people are always fishing on and trust me, I've had people all over, you know, calling me up, telling me they know <laughs> where my stands are, they see my cameras and everything else. Yeah when yep. I started doing these podcasts. But, but anyhow he has he has like a I don't know, you call it a right away or a power line or whatever you want to call it. I would I would get up on on that other side of that and come in, you know, you'd have you would have to wait for you know, uh, but the nice thing about his farm is it should hunt good for that area with the predominant wind because, you know, his farm is basically on the east side. So he, he you know, with a west wind or a north wind or a northwest or a southwest, he should be able to get up on that other, you know, be able to more or less say hunt the middle of that, you know. Um, because he and has not be detected.
2: A, an east side access. Yeah, yeah, yep. exactly.
3: Yep. That's, that's the best thing about his farm because, you know, I've I found a lot of places over the years that look like they're going to be a great farm to hunt, but it's totally wrong, you know, side of, it, it's all on the west side of the square, you know. You can't you – it's almost impossible. You can hunt it in the mornings, you know, when the thermals are rising. Right. A lot of times, you know, and I think that's a lot of times why I shoot bucks in bedding areas in, early in the morning. And that buck I killed this year or, you know, this past season in Ohio, you know, that buck came in straight downwind to me. You know, I knew I was hunting him on with with a wind blowing straight at him. But I knew that at, in the morning after, you know, there was a high pressure moving in after, you know, a low, and there was all that rain, and we had that wind was doing that switch around where you get out, that east wind when the front's coming out. And I was just hoping that when that sun comes up in the morning, as soon as it starts hitting the ground, the, the, the milkweed would float, and, and it did. And, you know, he came straight in downwind. And, and, you know, so that's something that I don't know a lot of people think about. Sometimes I think that guys that are using, you know, say an ozone machine or whatever, they think that that these deer are coming in downwind because of, you know, that. But a lot of times I, I think that it's just the thermals happen to be rising at that point, you know. And that's what's going on, you know. And in the mornings a lot of times you can get rising thermals, when, especially when you've got a high pressure. Yep. And you have, you know, a more open area and you have a lot of sunlight hitting the ground. You know, it's just like fog, you know, fog lifts when the sun comes out. You know, same thing, you know, whether there's fog or not, your your scent's going to r- r- rise up on that high pressure with it when that sun's hitting the ground.
1: Yeah, so talk about that a little bit, Mike. and a little bit of detail about the thermals. Are they... Um do you, you see the same consistency with flat ground and, and rolling ground when it comes to thermals? Just give give, give our listeners a quick 101. Well, definitely,
3: flat ground is definitely more consistent, in my opinion. You know, the more hills and ravines and trees and openings that you throw into things, then the more the wind switches around. You know, so you can select your stands by trying to find you know, places where you're going to have a consistent wind, you know, or a consistent thermal, and that just goes, you know, with time, you know, and you, you learn these spots, and when you find them, you know, those you be your go-tos. You know, I like to set up near water, like, for instance, in a beaver dam, where you have, uh, you know, a big, um, say, swamp, you know. I have one spot in Ohio, I've got a couple Pope and Young's at that same farm, um, out of this one out of this one funnel and on the one side it's a bend in a creek and on the other side of the funnel just 25 yards away it's 25 yards wide there's a a, a swamp that will hold like ducks in that and, and you know there's bedding on both sides there's a clear cut on the one side to the north and then to the south it's just like you know oaks and in, in, you know bigger timber and uh, you know if you set up on that water, on the edge of that, if you put your stand right on the edge of that water, as that water heats up, you know, throughout the day, when in the evening when, when the wind dies down, because it happens every, you know, pretty much all the time in the evening, your wind, you know, starts going down to nothing. You'll see, even if the wind was, say, coming out of the west, and I'm set up on the edge of that cr- uh, creek, like a slow-moving creek that, that the water you know, it's not, it's not a rushing creek like a trout stream, but like a slow-moving uh, creek that has beaver dams going through it that makes it move slow. That water right. will heat up, and, and then your thermals will pull back towards that water. Now, if you would be set up on the other side of that, say you didn't have water on both sides, and you set up on the other side of that trail on that on that funnel because, you know, you got a west wind, so you think you need to be on the east side of that trail, well, that might be good all day long, but in the evening – when everything dies down, your scent's gonna pull right back across that trail, so you better shoot the buck before he walks through, you know, downwind of you because he's a oh, semia, yeah. and, it's, it's, and because it's still, it, it, there's your scent's gonna be just like wafting all through the, down there, basically. That's why you want to get set up next to that water. But yeah, that, I mean, that's how how I use thermals um, on flat ground or in swamp or, you know. Like I said, I don't hunt a lot of topography, so I don't know. I can't tell you much about hill country or, you know. Right.
1: Now, what are some of the um, biggest mistakes you see guys making or maybe some mistakes that you learned from? I know we talked about the thing that I struggle with, not getting aggressive enough at the right time, and I'm, I'm working on that, and I'm hoping to get a little better at that this year. I got a little better last year. What, what what kind of stuff have you learned from your mistakes, or what do you see guys doing wrong that they could change pretty easily?
3: Well, um, one thing that um, a lot of hunters uh, seem to mistake—you know—they they go and what they do is they go out and they go scouting a couple of weeks before the season, and they find scrapes and rubs. And instead of asking themselves, "Why are they here? When were they here? You know, for what reason?" Um, when what, what was this sign made? Instead of taking into consideration that deer, especially mature bucks, spend most of their time bedded or, or else walking at nighttime, that this sign was probably not made when I can kill this deer. They just go and set up a stand there, and then they wonder why nothing shows up or why they're only seeing, you know, six points. You know, they're they're just not – thinking things through enough they're 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 finding the first hot sign or good sign that they consider good sign and they're setting up there because i did that when i was younger i mean i just you know i started reading articles when i didn't know nothing about bow hunting and oh my god i got to find rubs and scrapes i got to go run over and find a you know oh there's a rub you know there's another rub Uh, he's coming through here you know there's a scrape you know and set up a stand and you know i'm 20 feet off of a field you know On public land or something you know it's just like it ain't gonna happen you know you have you have to so that that's that's definitely one of the things and not being aggressive enough i mean i've had times where i you know in the past where i haven't been aggressive but i've been i've been becoming more and more aggressive over the years you know i've had good luck killing specific mature bucks the last couple years in ohio i've shot Uh, five-and-a-half-year-old and 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 eight-and-a-half-year-old buck, and and by being aggressive, you know, hunting on the wrong wind for that buck last year. That buck I called Super Freak with the drop times that I shot in 2016 that was five-and-a-half years old. You know, I I hunted that buck for six or seven days in a row. Everyone says don't go to the same place. Well, you you find a feeder creek that you can walk down through and you don't step on a leaf, and you hunt it with the right wind.
0: And, oh, and, 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 and
3: you can go in there every single day, and they don't know. I saw that buck three days out of six. I knew that he was going through that area from you know uh, previous history, like I said I do with the cameras, and I knew that between the 6th of November and the 12th of November, he frequented that area in daylight, and the only time all year that he did frequent that farm in daylight, and I went in there that time frame, and I saw him three out of six hunts, and shot him on the last hunt, and I had three Pope and Youngs that, that day, I shot that buck that were chasing does around underneath me when I shot him.
2: So, Mike, I want to hear that story at some point, but I, you kind of got me thinking about something here. The, the scouting. So, scouting is super important. We talked about that in our last episode. Um, and, and a lot of people, including myself and what well, sounds like you, scout as soon as Deer season's over. Maybe as soon as the snow melts, etc. Um, but if you're, you know, if we want to relate to some of the listeners right now, mid June, you know, what what are you doing in spring, summer, fall um, to get ready for for this year? And that may include, you know, your your new food plots we're talking about. What are you looking for? How are you determining where you're going to be this fall?
3: Uh, well, uh, I run my cameras all year long. And um, so, right now, a lot of my scouting involves, you know, my trail cameras. Like you said, I have been working on food plots this year, and that's more or less for my boys to hunt. Um, But uh, as far as for for my hunting um, in the summertime, I've traditionally, years ago, before there was cameras, I would sit on fields and glass, you know, fields and stuff like that, drive around, look for deer you know, now I basically, I know where I'm going to, you know, the, the the properties or the swamps or the public that I'm going to hunt, so I don't really go in there in the summertime other than I have cameras in there running, and I'll check them every, like, four weeks. And, you know, any cameras that may be near where I might set, you know, in a stand, um, those are in a tree, and cameras that are closer access um, are going to be, um, on, you know, down at eye level, you know, Say uh, on a bean field, or you know, on a mineral site in Ohio, or you know, st- stuff like that. You know? Okay, so a lot of Once the apples start dropping, I got cameras and apples. You know, that's that's what I do in the summertime. I try to get my inventory on the cameras that I can get at without bothering anything. The cameras that are further back towards bedding, I won't check those very often. I'll I'll check them a couple times, and that's it. You know, I don't need to. I just want to know. You know, uh, if they're gonna be moving, you know, when they're moving through there, and if they're moving through there, try to get any kind of pattern. You know, I don't feel that. A lot of people say that you know, there's no sense in running cameras all year, but I I I I think that it's good to find any. You know, there's always a pattern with a deer. You know, they're gonna they're gonna have some sort of pattern. You know.
2: So yeah. You it, it can't
3: never hurt. And you know, we're not the only predators that deer have. So. You know they're, they got they're 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 being you know chased by whatever you know just on everyday life bear a coyote whatever it is you know so there they if you can find a pattern even if it's in the summertime it, it might come useful you know um, when it comes hunting season. So,
2: yeah no I mean I learned about my property uh, It doesn't do much at all during the spring and summer besides house a doe family or two uh, like mm-hmm. there are no bucks in there after. The real cold sets in there's not enough food directly in my area. They move on. Um, yep and I learned that through having a camera there all year long. but now to your point about having the cameras all summer, now what what do you take from that? Say you find because a lot of these patterns will change come this end, end of August, you know September 1st somewhere in there a lot of bucks will move, some won't. You're probably inventorying
3: on what will stay and what will not, correct? Exactly. What I'm looking for is the home bodies because, okay. you know, you, I'm hunting home body bucks. Those are the best ones. Those are the ones you build up years of history with. I mean, you can you, you get Roman bucks that you can build up years of history with too, but you you have to be All there on know. the day they show up. You know. Yeah. And they usually will show up around the same time frame because I think that the does are coming in the heat in that same time frame, and they know these doe groups after they're four, five, six years old. What, what you know, which okay, I, I, you know, the, these does were we're ready, you know, this date. So I'm going to be there October 20th, you know, or whatever. You know what I mean? So, yep. but yeah, I want to know what what the home bodies are doing, and I want to know, you know, if there are any Roman bucks that happen to just show up because you will get that too in the summertime. You know, they're usually bachelor grouped up, but not yeah. not always. You know, some bucks will be loners and, and they don't want to be around other bucks. You know, you find that too over. I mean, over the untold thousands of pictures. I mean, last year I went through. I had 3 364 gig cards full of, of trail cameras Dang, so holy
2: cow. Th- and that you know
3: I mean uh, those flash those compact flash I, you know that's that's just that's the ones I keep you know some of them if there's nothing good on there I just trash them but I save right. everything you know so
2: so if you were one of our listeners right now and you were just getting your cameras set out um for the the summer into the fall I know you mentioned field edge and some apples and this and that would you do some sort of a, a, a grid fashion, uh, maybe over some mineral? I know mineral kind of fades off, but where would you start just for an easy first go-to for the listeners?
3: Well, Maybe a water hole even? I don't know. Well, I don't really put them on water. Water isn't a problem around here. <laughs> never seem to stop raining. Nowhere this year. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. But um, I noticed that, you know, bean fields, alfalfa fields, Really do are you know good for getting inventory this time of the year. I try to put them on the edge of the field or just inside the field. If there's if there's some apple trees just inside the field, I'm gonna put them there. Usually, I'm gonna put them in the lower spots. You know, I'll walk the field edges and look for tracks and and try to find where the bigger tracks are coming out into the fields. And usually, it's in the low spots because when it cools down in the evening, you know the thermals drop down in those low spots in the fields and. You know, you usually notice that the deer come up in low spots in the field, so that's a good place to start. You know, walk the edge of the field, look for big tracks. When you see a bachelor group of bucks are coming out, you know, you can tell by the tracks, you know, after a rain, and uh, and get your camera up. Usually it's going to probably be in some sort of low spot, but if not, I'm putting them in apple orchards. You know, I'll I'll go out every once in a while and and – well, I shouldn't say every once in a while. Every summer I'll go out and I'll look for acorns up in trees with binoculars and and then I'll I'll, I'll get cameras in in areas where there's oaks, you know, anticipating those dropping, you know, for when when the acorns are going to start dropping and, you know, um, definitely alfalfa and soybeans – apples that's that's what i'm keying in on mineral sites for sure i mean pennsylvania you can use mineral but you have to have it out 30 days before before the season starts it's kind of a hassle so i i I just use it in ohio in ohio it works out real good you know so it, it draws in you know a lot of bucks will come to that that mineral you get a lot of good inventory at mineral sites especially they've been well established i got a mineral site over on that farm i hunt in ohio that uh, I did a little, I have a YouTube channel, Whitetails247365. Shameless plug there. But, uh, it's, it, no <laughs> I YouTube. No. I have uh, watched it. I subscribed. But, anyhow, so you're good. I, 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 uh, I, I have a, um, a mineral site over there that's probably six to eight foot around. I mean, it, it's just torn up. It looks like a puddle of water, you know. It's, it, it, it's, but yeah, that, it will draw in every deer around for sure especially if it's close to uh, a bean field.
1: Now, Mike, uh, we've been talking lately. You're starting to get into the habitat work a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, what uh, kind of approach have you been taking on your own property? What, How did you get to thinking about putting these food plots in and why?
3: Okay. Well, like I said, I've, I've had my property logged out a couple times. And years ago, um, I decided I was going to try and kill off a lot of the so I was doing a little habitat improvement I didn't really realize it at the time but like a lot of quaking aspen and stuff that was getting drowning out smaller cherries and and, 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 and Oaks and that so I went in and girdled a lot of trees um, and I noticed when I had it logged in 2012 the last time it was logged was 2012 and it really got a lot of deer bedding right on the fence line my property line with my neighbors he has a a real thick pine thicket on his property, and the deer were either bedding in his pines or in my thicket. So um, I have some apple trees back here on the very back of my property, and I started thinking, well, you know, I can take the kids back there, set up some cameras, and and see what's going on in in these apples, you know, um, for early season. And uh, luckily, my son Hunter, when he was nine in 2017, he shot a buck first couple days of archery with the, you know, um, what is it? uh, What the heck are they called? Uh, (laughs) Crossbow. (coughs) Excuse me. He shot it with a crossbow there. And uh, there was a scrape there. There were some apple trees. And I decided, well, you know, Maybe I should be doing some more here to open it up so this apple, oh, these apple trees get more sunlight. Right. All right. So this year I decided I was going to go in there and I cut down a bunch of trees. So I did like in a 50, 50 yards, maybe more radius around these apple trees. I, I, I dropped all these soft maples just, you know, and I cut them all up and I took all the branches off of them and I kind of like made walls to funnel the deer so they were going to have to walk out with this food plot. Is and then I took and I raked up everything there and um, and I planted clover in there and, it, and it's coming up good now I got some sort of I don't know what this weed is that's that's coming up in it um, I I cut it actually today to get that down um, but that's that's the one the one site and that's basically what I started doing that was for for my kids you know my my um, my nine year old Hunter shot his first buck there in 2017 and then. Last year, Jonathan was um, eight, and he shot a doe there on the first day of archery where those, where those apple trees are. So I just wanted to improve that spot for the kids. You know, it's right behind the house. It's, it's easy to access. I can go in and around off of my neighbor's property. We cut in trails. Uh, we took a four-wheeler and went up down through there, and we cut in trails so we can walk in the back door, and I got a blind set up for them. So now it's nice because now there's a the clover plot there. It's growing nice, and um, I got the apple trees all, all opened up, so there should be way more apples this year than there has been in the past. So that should work out real good. And then right here behind my house, um, I don't have much field. My brother has the field next to me, and he doesn't really want to do anything with it, so I had to do you nails. Know, um small food plot there, and Brian had suggested peas, buckwheat, and clover mix, and uh, I got about a third of an acre that I did with, I just took my rotor tiller back there, I mowed it, I took my rotor tiller back there, and I tilled it up with my rotor tiller that I use in my garden, and I planted that stuff before we went to Florida two weeks ago, and I came back, and it was all up, I mean, I couldn't believe it, and you know, that's one thing I want to mention to any of your guys, you know, you got new listeners or whatever, you know, I you asked earlier about you know why I got into doing food plots or you know how, maybe why um, if I heard of it when I was right. younger or whatever but you know you 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 feel like you can't do it you know it's it's just like when you watch now I don't watch outdoor shows anymore nothing against them but I mean I did there was a point in my life when I watched them but when you watch them all these guys have friggin full size John deeres and you know they're planting they're they're planting you know Four zillion acres of, of of food plots, and not not that it's wrong. It's just that you know when you see that, you think to yourself. Even though I owned 20 acres of my own land, I thought to myself, "There's nothing I can do, <laughs> you know, because oh, I, yes, I can't sir. do that, you know. How am I going to do that?" But you know, I, I just this year I just went back there with a chainsaw, and a rototiller, and a rake, and sweat. And you know I have two food plots that are a third acre. You know, and I've got deer. In fact, I've got a camera on that clover back there by the apple trees, and that that scrape. Them, there's bucks coming in and going into that scrape every day, every day. You know, they're they're going in there. I don't know why, but they're, they're, they happen <laughs> to be walking through there. Now I know that they're bedded right by there. You know, that that's that definitely helps. You know, they they, they bed within a hundred yards those apple trees but they're they're walking through there to go out into the ag fields and it just happens to be their travel route and they stop and they you know i get pictures of them sticking their heads up and that's great you know it's
1: pretty funny yeah that's that's two great points that you covered there one you're not trying to draw the deer somewhere where they don't want to be it's kind of like turkey hunting
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know it's a good spot you know the deer like to be there so that's that's a good thing for our listeners to take away if you find a place where the deer like to come through, if you can. Now, there's, there's limitations depending on your property, whether it's soil or terrain, maybe that you can't do something. But even something as simple as Mike said, you know, get get some sunlight to the apple trees, get some sunlight to the ground. Do it where the deer want to be. That way you're not fighting, you know, trying to pull them somewhere where they don't want to go.
3: Exactly. These deer already had been traditionally going through there, so I figured I'd, I'd just try to improve it. and. You know, it, I, I'm I'm hoping that this year it will, it will definitely. I mean, it's I, we, they've two years in a row they both shot deer there. Anyhow, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be even better. You know, maybe they can maybe they can shoot a nicer buck or whatever. You know, I mean, I encourage right. them to shoot whatever they see. But you know,
2: no, Mike, I heard? think I think you had a great point there as well. Um, and probably the other point that Brian met was, you know, just get out there. If and we kind of covered this in the last It'll episode as well, it. but. Yeah, like, I mean, I've been working on, my first food plot, I think, was on, like, a five-acre property. Like, you don't have to have any huge equipment or a huge plot of land. I mean, yeah, it sucks when you don't have a tractor. I mean, I know all about that. Um,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Or even before I finally was able to get a four-wheeler, everything was hand tools. And, yeah, like you said, sweat. That's what it takes. Um, Mm -hmm. Where there's a will, there's a way, and if you want to improve your habitat or, or see more deer or wildlife, period, and you want it that bad, you'll you'll get out there and, and do it. So, if there's any questions from other listeners on, you know, how you guys can get started, just shoot us a Facebook message or, or Mike or Brian or I. I mean, I'm talking to a guy, Aaron, um, local Michigan guy. He's not thinking he's going to be home in time from being deployed to uh, to get his food classes on. It's like, I, I told him I think he does have enough time. So, there's... If you're ever unsure, just do a little research or reach out to us or whatever you want. Things can be done. It's not rocket science. These guys that you're talking about, Mike, they just have a lot nicer equipment than, than most people, you know, except for Brian. Brian's got yeah. pretty, pretty good <laughs> But it was, that was a good point. He does have a nice, have that a nice setup. <laughs> yeah,
1: it took a few years. I know it. <laughs> Getting there. I'm waiting uh, yeah. for him to
2: drive that John Deere up to Michigan to help me plant some stuff. That'd be nice.
1: <laughs> Anytime, man.
2: I tell you I what, he probably would. He, he already offered
3: to, to come and do it on, on our lease over there, so Brian's such you a know, good guy. Yeah,
2: I I would. I I know he would. He's such a good dude. Um but but that was a great point that you guys both were, were probably gonna cover there and I just want to make sure we had it so
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Okay, now um, I want to see, we're, we are getting a little over an hour here, Mike, and I want to be respectful of your time, um, kind of gone through everything we wanted to talk about, I'd like to maybe hear that Super Freak story or cover <laughs> anything else that we have maybe missed um, that you wanted to make sure we cover.
3: Well, we covered quite a bit, you know, I mean, the the main thing that I'd like to say is, you know, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, there's... No right or wrong way to kill a deer, and there's no magic potion. You know, it just anybody can do it. All they have to do is go out and try. You know, you just have to go out there and 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 get your you know get your butt walking, yeah. and, and you know look at the sign and try to ask self questions. You know, why is this here? When are they here? You know, and 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 you can you know have success too. Now, if you wanted me to talk about that deer. Um, uh, super freak. Right. I always like hearing big that, deer stories. So. Okay. Well, that <laughs> that buck. Um, How big was he? Uh, he was in the 150s, mid 150s. He, he, when in summer, when he was in velvet, he had he had two drops on his left side. One came down on one side of his left eye, and the other one came down back of his left eye. So he had Dead two eye. like eight inch draw Yeah, two like eight inch drops on his left side, which. Man, I was really excited when I seen that. Now the funny thing with that buck is, like, the first year that I tried to shoot him, and he had say he was a three and a half year old, and he was he was just like a, a five, four by five, you know. And it's funny because that year his left side was 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 real big, five points. His right side was way smaller. And then in the next year, in 2015. His right side had six typical points on it, and his left side had five typical points on it. Mm. And then in 2016, he was a typical five by five, but his right side was noticeably smaller than his left side, and his left side had these two big long drop tines on it. So, but it was you know it was definitely the same buck. I mean, his brow tines were the same all three years. I mean, they look exactly the same. I have do have one shed from him from 2015, but uh, yeah, that that buck. Um, I never would see him during daylight until late season. Um, I almost killed him in the late season in 2014 when he's a three and a half year old. He came out with some other bucks that had already shed into eating, t- um, you know, a waste out of a cornfield, you know. And uh, one of the smaller bucks saw me draw the draw the bow back. Thank God because Ellen ended up killing him two years later, a bit way bigger. But um, so I had a lot of history with that deer, but he didn't walk around very much during daylight. And that was another situation where there's a big beaver dam there, and uh, I had put a camera on a trail on that transition, like I was talking about, in the the beaver dam where that 40-50 yards is all like dogwood and just you know thick. And he was walking the edge of that in November, between like the sixth and the twelfth. I had like three daylight photos. Now there was a there was a doe that was bedding in this little patch of thicket right on this little feeder creek. And, you know, that's why, you know, I quit shooting does in October years ago because I found that um, over time, you know, through trial and error, that if you got a doe that's, or a couple does that are bedding, you know, a lot of times they, they stay in a small area, you know. And if you got a couple little patches of thicket and you know there's a doe bedding in there, I mean, just stay out of there until, you know, the right time, and you, there's a good chance you can shoot a nice buck, you know, especially in over in northeast Ohio where we're hunting that. But so, anyway, that there was a there was a doe that was bedding off of this feeder creek, and I put up two stands down on um, that transition where that feeder creek was, and uh, one for each, you know, you know, two two different winds, one on each side of the trail, basically that he had walked down the previous year, and I walked down that feeder creek. You know, I got on it. As soon as I got into the woods, I got right off the logging road, and I walked down in there and I sat there all day long. For it was almost like it was six days out of seven or whatever it was. And I saw Super Freak almost killed him on the ninth. He came in to get that doe right behind me. And the wind was my, my – the it was a, a high-pressure day, and the milkweed was floating high. And he, he came in. They came in from behind me, downwind of me. And I snort wheezed him up to me because he didn't want to leave that doe. And uh, I had seen him. That was the second time I saw him, third time I saw him. He, and when he walked out of there, he went to um, – there was a patch of like – it was like a triangle right on the edge of the property line. And it was maybe – Two acres and it was just so thick. it is the kind of stuff, and I'd go in there and look for sheds, but you couldn't even barely walk through. You know, you have to lift branches up so you can get your body underneath them, and you know, that's how thick it was. And he went into that same spot every time I saw him. So I figured, well, I'm going to have to get over there if I want to kill him because he's, he's not coming by this tree, you know, for whatever reason. I snort wheezed him up to me, I almost killed him. But right when I went to draw my bow back, he heard. Something he didn't see me he didn't he just like jump and he was only ten yards but he I he was so thick in there I couldn't get a shot out so anyhow I go back there it was a I think it was the 14th of November it was that night of that super moon so I shot the super freak on the night of the super moon it was kind of cool but um, I went cool. in there and when I walked down in um, I, I, I brought my uh, my stick and stand you know my my lone wolf stick and and, and uh, sticks and stand and there was a cherry tree that he had walked by to go into that little thicket right there. So I figured, well, i got to get in that cherry tree. So I got up in that cherry tree, and when I had walked in there, I jumped a couple deer. So I, was, I wasn't sure what they were. It was high pressure. Um, got up in the tree about... 45 minutes after I got and I had worked that night before, and I, had to, I was supposed to work that night. So I, I got there late. It was like 2 in the afternoon. My vacation was over now at this point. And uh, I got up in the tree, and I hear this deer snorting to the north. And I'm like, okay, this wind is blowing out of the southwest. There's no way that this deer smells me. And I'm right on the edge of a swamp. So, you know, I'm watching my milkweed float up over the swamp through the cattails. Like, I don't know, you know, what this deer's snorting at. And then it was real quiet. And I, could, I and I, I hear this deer walking. And here comes this buck that I called the intruder buck. He was a, a real big eight point, like a one, you know, mid 140s. Jeez. And he, he comes down right under the tree that I had hunted all those days previously. He comes right down that trail. Of course. And. And this, yeah, the doe is on the right on the neighboring property, and I think what happened was when I walked in there, I, the deer that I spooked was a doe and a fawn, because what ended up happening was, so that doe's snorting, and she's snorting and snorting, and then here comes that buck, and when he walked by, and I realized I wasn't going to get a shot, he was like 40 yards, but I don't shoot that far with my bow. you know, I just don't, so, um, especially, you know, it, it's, when it's stick like that, whatever, but I mean, I, so I it's tried to call him the over, yeah. Yeah, so I, gr- I grunted to him, and um, and I, you know, hit the mew can, and he 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 had nothing to do with it. He was he started chasing that doe around, and I could hear them, you know, chasing around, and I'm watching them. So I hear another deer coming from that direction where the buck had come from, and here it's this little fawn, and this fawn is walking right towards me. She's walking down the edge of the transition, and she's coming from the south. And the chasing is going on right now to my like northwest. And the fawn's coming down the transition, and I hear a buck run, And here comes this buck that had been in there for several years. He just didn't have a real big rack. He was like a 130 something inch buck, but I've been getting pictures of him for several years. He just never got any bigger. I called that buck Intimidator, but he, he, he just had this look on his face. He was just a cool looking buck, but he just didn't have a huge rack and he's following this doe and I'm like okay I'll shoot him I don't care you know <laughs> so he's walking <laughs> he's walking straight down the transition right at me following this fawn and the whole time I hear this deer walking through the swamp like in the cattails in the marsh in the, in the in the water I could hear his footsteps um, and, and all the ruckus of this buck chasing this doe I mean this all happened within a few minutes you know and I could hear this deer coming from straight downwind of me south you know to my northeast the wind's blowing in the southwest, but like I said, it was floating high. So I'm getting ready for this this eight point this other eight point that's that's walking straight at me. Now, the fawn goes right behind me. When she gets behind me, he's like 30 yards behind her, grunting, nose to the ground, walking straight at me. So I'm going to have to wait for an angle on this deer. And all of a sudden, when this fawn steps into the cattails on the edge of the marsh, I just hear all this... Water splashing and this and that, and then I hear grunting. And next thing I know, here comes Super Freak chases the, chases that fawn, right around my tree. She stops out in front of me, and I just, you know, drew back and pivoted my hips and turned. And he was, right below me, you know, six eight yards, and just, you know, oh, drilled man. him right through the boiler room. <laughs> it, was, it was, that was pretty. It happened fast, but it was fun. man. Yeah, it was, I was so happy, man. But, yeah, what sometimes a story. it happens like that, you know. But oh, the thing nice. that I'm trying to the whole point of that story when I told you that earlier was that you know guys think as far as being aggressive is I hear all the time, oh first time in only you know, yeah, first time in's great, but if you can get in there without the deer knowing it doesn't end it, you know, and I had seen that buck three times before that, and you know he's not the only deer in the woods, you know, so right. Yeah, you know, I sometimes you've got to be aggressive, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you just – you I can't, can't see on, you sitting on the couch, you you No, know? you're right,
2: and, and I think – I don't know. I think certain – I mean, you would know, I guess, PA and uh, Michigan, New York, I think you can be – You I think you need to be aggressive to kill these bigger deer. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think that with a smaller property, you can also – be over-aggressive very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But, so, so I've been, I've been super conservative the last, I don't know, five years. And it's, it's paid off, if you will, but I've also, you know, sat and watched So it's kind of like, this is a fine line. I haven't figured out what that line exactly is yet, but, um, I know that maybe when you get those cold fronts or, or you have a nice rain coming the next day or wash out your sun away, maybe it's the time to be aggressive, but, um I don't know where that line is to trying to figure that out.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm uh having struggles with the being aggressive, not aggressive enough. don't want to get too aggressive, but I think it's um time of year dependent, you know, like Mike talks about throwing the rut, now you can't go in there like a goof. I mean, these big bucks even though they they're, they're distracted, they're not going to, you know, Get, uh, come in and fall over for you but I think you can get away with a lot more and that's something that I'm working on trying to get more aggressive at the right time
3: and also you know if you do have the access that has a lot to do with it I'm not going to be too aggressive if I don't have you know the access that you know as when it go when, you know as dealing with um, hunting the same area or same stand more than once you know if I have good access then I will be aggressive like that
2: Awesome, awesome well I, guys, I think that was a great another great point. We cover access a ton on this podcast as well, so hopefully a couple of our listeners will uh you know put a few extra nails in the coffin when it comes to a, a nice big buck this fall but Mike, I wanted to say thank you one more time for coming on um no problem time. that's great talking to you man you're you're a big buck killer <laughs> um <so laughs> thank you I think we needed to have this conversation about three years ago but this is great man um no <laughs> go ahead and shamelessly plug your youtube one more time so listeners can find you
3: okay it's whitetails 24 7 365 and um i'm just you know i've just started it i've just been doing it with a cell phone so it's nothing you know ground shaking i'm just trying to go through basically put little uh, little tidbits up there for guys you know a lot of guys know the stuff that i'm saying but there's always new hunters out there that that, you know, have questions about things. So I try to cover how I go about throughout the season. I'll be putting stuff out and, and um just giving tips on what, you know, what to do in certain situations and what I do, what I look for. My setups, I, I put some of my setups on there. So, yeah, hopefully it's helpful to somebody.
2: Yeah, 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 and hopefully we can send a few more subscribers your way. I know there's a few more white-tailed nuts that uh, follow the podcast, so – um, cool. if anybody else wants to reach out to you can they find you on Facebook or,
3: or? yeah I'm on Facebook it's Mike Perry okay and uh, and cool. I you know the answers questions on messenger you know I have people every time I do one of these you know ask me questions and stuff like that so yeah I'll help anybody out any way I can
2: awesome Mike well thank you so much again for your time uh, really do appreciate it and I wish you the best of luck this fall my friend another episode in the books everyone Thank you to the listeners for tuning in once again and thanks to Mike Perry for coming on the Habitat Podcast. Brian, I don't know about you, man, but that got me excited for bow season, which is about three and a half months away.
1: Yeah, that'll get the blood flowing. good (laughs) stories about some big bucks and some tactics and some new tips to give a try.
2: Yeah, some very detailed scouting techniques. Um... Might have to have him on again right before season or something because that was I mean can listen to it again of course, but I feel like yeah. you're getting out to be getting in the woods and you start seeing some of this stuff. Might have some questions, so it might be a good time to bring him back on. That was that was awesome. He's a killer. I've you go on his Facebook page, he's got tons of big deer on there. But uh how'd you guys meet anyways? You said uh like a an archer club or
1: yeah, the United Bow Hunters of Pennsylvania that was is it. a uh, large group that has done a lot since 1985 for sure. the Bow Hunters of Pennsylvania. They've gotten our season extended. They've gotten a bear archery season. Great organization. Uh, as you know, uh, I was the editor of their magazine, and then more recently, the director of media operations for a while. Mike was, a, I believe, a regional director and maybe even a county rep at one time. So we knew of each other and talked online and, uh, you know, were familiar with each other through the organization and, and through some other venues. And then uh, just getting to talking to him, found out once I was up in Ashtabula County, Ohio, yeah, literally, he's four or five miles from me, the one wow. farm that he could buck on. And uh, I helped him track a deer one day, and he came over and scouted a couple times. So it's, it's really nice to walk around in the woods with somebody that's been at it that long and to see what they see, and I'm glad he mentioned his YouTube channel, because he'll walk you through the spots that he was just talking about, and it's it's really cool to connect the dots, you know, because a lot of times we listen to this stuff and talk about it, but once we see it, it all comes together.
2: Yep, yep, no, that's a great point, it'd be cool to have some videos on your farm with him um, at some point, I'm sure you'd love to walk around with him again anyways, but Oh yeah. yeah. I've been watching real. this stuff too on YouTube and uh full of information, so I Good appreciate job. you getting them on here, man.
1: Yeah, no problem.
2: Uh next let's uh thank the listeners one more time. Let's thank our sponsors. We have Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Packer Max, Cult of Packers, Dip That Hydrographics, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Every one of these companies is out there hammering it hard right now getting ready for uh this upcoming fall and if you guys don't mind check them out and tell them the habitat podcast sent you uh, most of them are offering discounts if you mention the podcast so if you're new to our podcast you can find us on habitatpodcast.com itunes spotify podbean stitcher wherever you can get a podcast we'll be at we've been doing a lot on Facebook, Instagram. And also YouTube lately. Brian's been kicking butt on YouTube, making a lot of content on his place. So since he's dry enough to get some stuff going. and uh, really I really appreciate that, man. You have some great stuff putting up there. Um, we're also doing a giveaway on Facebook right now for some killer food plots, climatized feed. So be sure to get on our Facebook and uh, find that giveaway. And, you know, once again, just thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great episode as we become better Habitat Managers.